Godzilla made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, Grizz Nation, to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast, a podcast on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network alongside GBB Live, the 3 and D Podcast, and the Starting 5 Podcast. Make sure you're checking that out on, the, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. You can find it on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. We have all the trade deadline content that you need. I wrote on the different hurdles and potential outcomes for a Gorgie Dane trade. And Justin Lewis got some input from the GBB staff on who are the keepers aside from John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. So make sure you're checking that out on the blog. But I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is none other than Nathan Haterade Chester. Nate, what's Parker, up? Why are you? Why, why are you calling me a hater, man? What have I done to uh, earn that title? I would just suggest looking up John Morant tweets under under your profile. <laughs> I, I have said nothing since the start of this season that has been inaccurate or untrue about John Morant or really much of anything else, really, to be honest. You know, I just call it like I see it in the moment. And sometimes knee-jerk reactions, prisoner of the moment takes are not always the right way to go because, you know, I'll take, I'll give you one for example. People were putting Tyler Hero in the tier with Zion Williamson and Sean Morant in the playoffs last year, and it's become exceedingly clear that Tyler Hero does not belong in that tier from the 2019 NBA draft. So, look, we all got our knee-jerk reactions. I got them, but at least in the moment, I always feel good about them, and that's what matters. Well, Nonetheless, uh, the last time John Morant played, he had a fantastic outing against the Boston Celtics, scoring 29 points, dishing out 11 assists, making some insane highlight reel plays in the third quarter that really sparked a Grizzlies run that kind of give them control over the game over Boston until uh, crunch time, about under four minutes left because of some rotation decisions that you know, other people have gotten into on Twitter and on other podcasts, so we don't really need to get into that. But nonetheless, we saw John Morant really just kind of look aggressive and look like the John Morant that we saw earlier in the season, the John Morant that we saw last season as well. So it's a good sign going forward. I mean, I like to see that going into this four-game home uh, road trip against Oklahoma City, the Utah Jazz, a.k.a. Nathan Chester's second-favorite team, and the Houston Rockets. Are you implying that I'm racist? <laughs> no, I, I'm implying that you like Rudy Gobert so much. <laughs> no, Utah Jazz are well down my favorites list. And I saw a tweet the other day that said Rudy Gobert should be the, MV, the MVP favorite, not in the conversation, but the, I think it was Chris Mannix. And he was the yeah. same guy, I think, who said uh, – who would you rather have, Brad Stevens or like any NBA player of your choice going forward? So probably not the best take there. But on the topic of John Morant, 
Ja has become a very predictable player this year. What I mean by that is no matter, we've talked a lot about schemes that opposing defenses are throwing at him. They're trapping him. They're blitzing him in the pick and rolls. They're forcing him to dribble out of those situations to get the ball out of his hands. He's struggling with his jump shot. Um, he's shooting 23% from three right now on the volume of attempts that he's taking. That would be the worst three-point shooting season in NBA history. You're going to laugh at me, but that actually is true. And we've seen a lot of growing pains for him in year two, but I can generally tell in the first quarter whether he's going to have a good game or not. And I knew he was going to have a good game against Boston because he was attacking from the opening tip. It doesn't matter what the Boston Celtics were throwing at him. Now, granted, it was the corpse of Jeff Teague that they were putting on him for a good amount of the game. So I think we should expect John Moran to have a pretty good game in those situations. But he was aggressive right from the opening tip. He was constantly getting downhill. He was getting toward the basket. That makes the game come easier for him, and it makes the game come easier for his teammates because the defense has to react. The defense has to collapse when he starts going downhill, when he starts going towards the basket. Because here's the truth of the matter. When you watch games and he's just kind of easing his way in and you'll look up seven or eight minutes into the first quarter and he's taking one shot – those are the type of games where I just know for whatever reason, like just the energy is not always there with him. And when he's not attacking from the opening tip, it's harder for him to find an overall rhythm in the game. And that's just a trend I've noticed all season long. When he comes out aggressive, it doesn't matter what scheme he's facing. It doesn't matter what opponent he's facing. He's generally going to play well. And when he comes out and is extremely passive, that's when he's going to struggle. It's an ongoing trend. Fair. That's fair. I mean, I mean, honestly, I know Joe Mullinax has written on it. He had a fantastic feature about a month or so ago called The Book on Jaw. And I think really it just comes down to something as simple as this. I don't think anybody on this Grizzlies roster misses Jaron Jackson Jr. as much as John Morant does because teams know how to scheme against Jaw. Because, and it, let, let's use this historical Grizzlies sense as part of an example, and that's the 2013 Western Conference Finals where the Spurs just packed into the paint. They prevented Mike Conley from getting any driving lanes, and they just – the second option, second, third options aside from that were to get the ball to Zach Randolph and Marc Gasol, who really weren't seeking out perimeter shots as often back then. And you're seeing that now to an extent with Ja because – here's what defenses will have to pick their poison with. Would they rather have John Morant get going, attacking the basket, getting downhill, finding his teammates, or would they rather collapse the lane and force him to go to either a paint dominant Jonas Valanciunas, who I know people are like, Oh, Jonas needs more shots. But the thing is they're just collapsing on him inside of where he can't get shots off. That's why his shot attempts are low has nothing to do with his touches. Or are they going to bite the pill with, a sub 40% Dylan Brooks and a Kyle Anderson who just became a three-point threat this season or a young shooter like Grayson Allen or Desmond Bain who we've seen with both players have shown the hesitancy to not really shoot the ball. I mean, Grayson Allen literally sat at the top of the key for three or four seconds in that fourth quarter the other night against Boston. Yeah. Wide to be open. fair, I think I, th I think he thought there was less time on the clock. I think he thought Boston was going to have to foul, and that's why he didn't shoot it. Yeah, but still, nonetheless. But anyway, you're right, you're right for sure. But, yeah, even with Bain, you've seen times where he's passed up a three to put the ball on the floor for either a two-point shot or to find his teammate. 
So there's just a book on them. And I think everything shifts when the, the three-point marksman that averaged 18 points a game, shot 40% on almost seven threes a game. The offense, the defensive schemes, and, you know, I'm going to use the term, the gravity is going to shift when you have a volume shooter of that caliber out on the floor, especially one like Jaron Jackson Jr. who can post up, take the ball on the dribble and score inside. And really we've seen him take guys like, I mean, Zion Williamson last season in the bubble, he looked like a defender in quicksand, but I mean, he was taking guys like Ben Simmons off the dribble. We've seen him take Giannis off the dribble, adding a player that caliber, I think is really going to open up things for John Morant and the Grizzlies offense. And I remember looking at the game laws and splits from last year when jaw had played games with Jaron Jackson jr. He, he was shooting about 50% from the field. And I think that's no coincidence because it opens up so much on the court. And I, I don't, I'm not buying, I know people are really wanting to be edgy, not, not just you, but it's just like, people are like, Oh, are we ready to have a conversation on John Morant? It's a sophomore season. He's 21. He's never faced any sort of coverage like this. And I know people say, Oh, Murray state, but the NBA is not the OVC like Sark. Sorry to any racer fans out there. It's not the same caliber of defenses. And he's just adjusting. He's adjusting to wanting that you can see clearly he's he gets frustrated by the calls quite a bit. So Very I think that gets in his head a little bit. It's a sophomore season where most people go through sophomore slumps. And I think one thing that goes under unnoticed is the fact that with all these turnarounds and games there's not as much practice time. A lot of the times when they're not playing, they'll get days off because they had just played four games in five nights or five games in seven nights and stuff like that. So that's extra reps that you're missing too. Extra reps, extra rest. I think it's fine. I think John Morant will be fine. And I don't think there needs to be any sort of edgy, oh, be ready for a conversation or anything. I just think it really boils down to the fact that he misses Jaron Jackson Jr., more than any player on this team. There's a lot of truth to what you're saying, and I'm going to kind of take, let's say, a middle ground. Um, the sky is falling position, but um, I definitely think Jaron Jackson missing is a good chunk of it. Here, here's the fact of the matter, and I wrote about this all the way back, I think, in August of last year. It was before, right before the bubble started. And I said, like, going into this coming season, so this year, I don't really know what to expect. I didn't think we should expect a massive leap from 2019 rookies because they were going to have like a two and a half month off season in the crazy circumstances of our world. So when you're putting in work for four and five months in a normal off season, you're playing pickup, you're doing weight training, you're doing everything you need to do to have the next evolution in your game to take that next step. And many of these guys didn't even have access to the facilities to even do that. And it was a much shortened time span. So for Tyler Hero to be struggling the way that he is in year two, yeah. or for John Morant to not take the leap going into year two that I may have thought he was going to, I told you before the season, I thought he was going to average 24 and 10, like he did in his final season at Murray State. That disappoints me, but it's also not surprising to me in the slightest. That yeah, you set a really high bar. You know how many players in NBA history have averaged 24 and 10? 
I, I think it's been, the reason I think I did is because we've put Ja and Trey next to each other so much. And, you know, Ja doesn't quite dominate the ball the way that Trey Young does, but Trey Young came in and averaged 28-9 the second season. And Ja is hey, not. Can I, can I stop you for a quick question? Yeah. How successful was Trey's team when he was averaging 28-9? Oh, well, they're over 500 right now. And he's I, no, no, but last oh. season, last season. Yeah. They were awful because he, he, they were playing Cam Reddish 30 minutes a night and they had constant injuries. John Collins, well, John Collins. He got suspended, a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, suspension. And so, like, it, I never really blame. It, it was fun to say, oh, Ja is elevating his team to the playoffs and Trey Young's putting up a ton of numbers and the Hawks are bad. Were there empty stats there? Sure, but Trey Young had nothing to do with why the Hawks were terrible last year. That's just the fact of the matter. Should he have probably elevated them more than he did? Probably. I think that's fair to say, but that roster around him was awful with the injuries, the suspension, everything else. But um, like I overestimated what to expect from John year two. I think that's fair to say. I think many other people did as well. And he still like he still had one of the historically greatest seasons that a rookie point guard has had in recent memory. And he's been better in some ways this year. And he's also taken a significant step back in areas like defense and three-point shooting. And here's kind of the middle ground that I'm coming to. Um, Jaron Jackson would open up the floor more for John Morant. And there's an article that Kevin O'Connor wrote for the Ringer right after the Grizzlies picked John Moran that I think is very ironic in retrospect because he said Jaron Jackson Jr.'s greatest value to the Memphis Grizzlies is becoming a superstar and John Morant's greatest value to the Grizzlies is making it easier for Jaron Jackson to become a superstar when in reality it looks like the inverse might be more true going forward here. Um, like Jaron Jackson had a very good rookie season, even without John Morant. And God knows Mike Conley, Marcus all, they were not really giving him the touches that he probably should have been getting as a rookie. He didn't really struggle that much because he was playing a complimentary role to those guys. And you see Ja, and Ja is still putting up good counting stats. He's still showing the makings of a future superstar. But you see. I think at this stage, it might be fair to say that Ja needs Jaron more than Jaron needs Ja, because Jaron's going to get his touches one way or the other. And Ja, at this stage in his game, where he is struggling tremendously to shoot the basketball, and we can talk a lot about how the Grizzlies are not a good shooting team and how that affects spacing and driving lanes for Ja, but I went back and did the math. So ever since Justice Winslow entered the lineup, the Grizzlies are 25th in three-point shooting as a team. If you took out Ja Moran and Justice Winslow, they'd be 14th. <laughs> they would be 14th in the league if you took out those two guys. Ja's not helping himself in any way is the point that I'm making. And he shot 35% from three on just under five attempts at Murray State. And he shot 34% on limited attempts as a rookie. Even this year, I can't continue to see him to be this historically terrible. I feel like he's inevitably going to have a game where he shoots five of seven from three. I don't expect him to remain this way as a shooter for the rest of his NBA career, even though I think it's it's his swing skill. It's what's going to determine whether he's an occasional all-star or a perennial MVP candidate. It's that important to his game. But Ja needs to help himself. Like Ja's shot has got to come around. And I don't know how much that's going to happen this year, but he would be helping himself out a lot with spacing, with blitzes, with driving lanes a lot if he was simply shooting the ball at a higher clip. 
And so I'm kind of at that middle ground. Having Jaron back would be a big help to him, but Ja could also help himself in some ways right now. I'm not going to get into it much, but I think there is one point that needs to be made about John Moran's defense. And I think a lot of it is, especially like his pick and roll defense, it's magnified a little, it's amplified a little bit when he's sharing the floor with Jonas Valanciunas, who is better in drop situations, which means that they're getting burned easily on pick and rolls and stuff like that because Jonas is slow footed and Jaws just dying on screens. I, I think one thing that we've seen too, it's, it's similar to what we, he had to do in Murray State. He's, he's spending so much energy having to beat these blitzes, beat these counters, and really be the engine of the offense that it's affecting his defense. But one thing worth noting is that the Grizzlies, with Jonas Valanciunas off the floor, they're a lot better defensively. They are in the 99th percentile in turnover, opponent turnover percentage which is higher than any of the turnover percentages from the grit and grind era. Valanciunas is not a bad defender. Um, most bigs in the NBA cannot sw reliably switch pick and rolls. They just can't. Like, we all want modern positionalist basketball where that can happen, but the truth of the matter is that most bigs cannot reliably do that. I don't have the percentile in front of me, but I want to say he was in the 80 to 90th percentile for last year as a rim protector, Valanciunas was. So when the Grizzlies go to drop coverage and Valanciunas is going toward the rim, he does a good job of defending the rim. If Valanciunas had a good defensive point guard in the starting lineup, his issues would not look as extreme as they do at times when point guards are just walking into open mid-range shots. They're just walking into floaters. So Valanciunas's weakness as a defender, his lateral mobility, his agility, that gets accentuated by Ja Morant's issues. And really, I think Ja's carrying a lot of the load on offense, and that's affecting his energy level on defense, like you said. But um, just watching the way he dies on screens, <laughs> I mean, it'll be funny to hear me say it, but um, he's just got to get stronger. Like he's got to, he's, you look at him physically compared to most other NBA guards and he is very clearly thinner than most people he's going up to. He doesn't have the frame to put on great weight. He's never going to be Russell Westbrook or John Wall physically. And that's okay. He doesn't have to be, but that does need to be a focus for him going forward because um, the solution is not taking Jonas Valanciunas out of the starting lineup and bringing him off the bench. Ja has just got to work harder to get over and just get by these screens so that Valanciunas is not constantly put into no man's land where his lack of lateral mobility is really put and exaggerated to the degree where he is struggling in those situations. All right. I, I just think that it all helps when you have as many switchy guys on the floor as possible, like having guys like Brandon Clark or Xavier Tillman at the five helps. And even last season, Everyone's like, oh, but Jaron can't rebound. Why is he playing the five? It's because they generate a, a crap ton of turnovers because you're having either Jaron Jackson Jr., Kyle Anderson, or Brandon Clark switching out of, of pick and rolls as the big men. That's why it works. But, you know, I, I did have one thing I wanted to talk about uh, on this show, and that's my take that I had the other night. Maybe I was feeling myself after a good post and a good win. But I think the Grizzlies have found their, gr their grind, son after thinking it was Jamal Franklin or Jordan Adams, I think they found it, Dylan Brooks. 
let, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> Dylan Brooks played great. Um, 20, he had 24-8-8 eight, eight against Boston. 24-7-7 yeah, seven and seven with two steals. Okay, 24-7-7. Seven and seven. Um, He played great. He was a key reason why the Grizzlies were able to pull it out in overtime. Boy, the narrative around him after that game could have been completely different <laughs> if a bunch of those 15-foot step-back jumpers didn't go in. But that's his uh, shot. That's yeah. his shot. <laughs> when they're going in, it's his shots. Um, his shot selection wasn't great in that game, but I'll never care about shot selection if the shots go in at the end of the day. Um, but you, I always get queasy whenever Dylan Brooks gets brought up at a potential trade or anything because um, there are just certain things, and we've talked about this ad nauseum at this point, but there are just certain things you just can't calculate in a box score about what a player may provide for your team. There is a swagger, a tenaciousness, a tenacity to Dylan Brooks's game that you can't properly quantify. The way he gets in the grill of opposing stars, the way he starts talking to them, trying to get into their head in any way, and really his defense alone provides more than enough value to be in the Grizzlies rotation. When he's shooting the ball well, when he's getting into the mid-range, when he's scoring, those are nice bonuses and pluses to me. But when you talk about a grind son, just somebody that you can just slap on an opposing star, just like you did with Tony Allen back in the day. Now, don't get me wrong, Dylan Brooks is not Tony Allen. He's not maybe the best perimeter defender in NBA history, not by any stretch of the imagination. But you need guys – who, for lack of a better way to describe it, are just crazy. Guys who are just like, hey, I want your irrational confidence tonight. You have the irrational confidence to face down LeBron James and say, all right, I'm going to outplay you tonight, even though he probably is not going to do that. But he has the capacity to be a great defender. I think he's a candidate to make one of the all-defensive teams this year. We saw him lock up Bradley Beal within two weeks of each other and back in two different games. Um, he is earning that reputation, not just in the organization, but also across the league as a stopper, as a guy whose tenacity, his attention to detail makes the Grizzlies better, even when he's taking bad shots, even when he's not scoring the ball efficiently, as a guy who still has an impact on winning basketball. Our biggest attacker on Dylan Brooks Island, Justin Lewis, he, he texted me uh after the game on monday night he goes hey I, I gave dylan brooks and your piece props in the podcast i said great that's cool i'm gonna listen and uh he he talked about the piece and he had a ninth or tenth on his keeper rankings uh behind grayson allen which i mean i love grayson allen but that's probably not true and he said it was quote unquote hysterical thinking that Dylan Brooks is a all defensive team caliber player because he's decreased his fouls per game by half a foul, which really, I didn't focus on the fouls per game. I focused on what he did versus some of the elite leagues, elite scores. I talked about his a level uh, defensive activity per B ball indexes stats, including real adjusted turnover rate, pickpocket rating, passing lane defense, steals per 75 possessions, and deflections per 75 possessions. All A- minus or A grades. I focus on that. But also, I, I agree with you. Just like you need that juice. You need that swagger. You just need that edge. I mean, we've seen him talk mess 
We saw him talk mess to Marcus Smart. He's done it to Paul George. He's done it to LeBron James. He's not afraid to try to get in his opponent's head. And I'm going to read this quote that Kyle Anderson told me about Dylan Brooks and his impact beyond the box score. And he said, quote, he brings it every day and that's just contagious. That rubs off on everybody else when we step on the court. You kind of laugh at his crazy antics, which is what you just talked about, Nate. But that's important. You got to have that every game. You got to bring that juice. So he definitely does that for us. You just need guys that are going to go out and bust it for all 48 minutes. You, you can see it even. It could be a 20-point lead or a 20-point deficit. Dylan Brooks is going to bring the same exact tenacity as if it were a close game. So, and also, too, I think with just the grind, son, people forget. I think it's a nice little rewrite in people's head. Dylan, or Tony Allen made some bonehead decisions on the offensive end of the court. This man was known offensively among Grizzly fans to just blow easy shots, fast break layups, layups off cuts. But we love him because the very next play, he'll go absolutely rip the ball out of his opponent's hands and he'll create another possession for the Grizzlies. Mm -hmm. And just his antics and his defensive intensity and just the fact that his – Mojo never really wavered throughout the course of a game. It's valuable, and it really sparks the great and grind era. You saw what happened when you got rid of Tony Allen and Zach Randolph in that 2017-18 season, among other factors, but still not having them play a factor. And I think Dylan Brooks, he brings that same juice, that same leadership, that same defensive tenacity, and I just think that he might be the grind son. Like, brother – um, I think the narrative has changed over time, but if you want one more parallel between Tony Allen and Dylan Brooks, I remember everybody from 2016 all the way to the end of 2017 when Tony Allen finally went to New Orleans. Um, I remember people on Grizz Twitter constantly wanting to trade Tony Allen during those last couple of years, thinking we can go find someone who brings um, solid defensive impact while also being a threat as a three-point shooter. I remember that all the time. There was always frustration with Tony Allen, even during his peak years, even during his prime years in Memphis. And, you know, you need that chaos. You need that organized chaos at times where you never know. You know a guy's going to bring consistent uh, tenacity, effort, and hustle, just like Tony Allen and Dylan Brooks do. But there will be nights where they hurt your team. And you just know what you're signing up for when it comes to that. But the times when they raise the floor of your team by their tenacity, by their effort, and that more than makes up for whatever negatives they might bring on an occasional night. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I can't really say anything else. As a, as a uh, president and founder of Dylan Brooks Island, my, my opinion, my takes, they're all over the place on Twitter. And I know, I know probably, you're – He should probably give you like a million dollars out of his contract because like there has been no one he, – he probably owes you like some money based off the pieces that you've written about him over the last three years. At this oh, point. easily. And even then, I was a fan of his dating back to when he was in Oregon. I only wrote about two prospects for the 2017 draft because at the time the Grizzlies didn't have a pick. I'm like, okay, if they, well, if they trade in – here are some guys they should go after. I only wrote on Dylan Brooks and Josh Hart. So I think I did pretty good there, to be honest. But there's a six-part series. And I actually had thought after I wrote that piece the other night, I'm like, 
that might be the most important Dylan Brooks piece I've written since the, since the constitution of Dylan Brooks Island itself. It's what you texted me. Uh, I'd like to think at this point that you have a Dylan Brooks poster over your bed and like each night you get down on your hands and knees and you look up at that poster and say, did I do enough? <laughs> no, before I go to bed, I just, I whip out my Jesus calling and my Bible and do my devotion in the night on a good note for the Lord I, Jesus Christ. I, I, I'm very happy to hear that. That warms my pastoral heart to hear that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so to close the show, we're going to give our fiery, quick trade deadline predict predictions for tomorrow, as well as our predictions for tonight's game. Let's start with the trade deadline. Nate, give off your two. You know, it's easy for me to say, like, I don't know where Gorgie Jang is going, so maybe the Grizzlies will just buy him out. But also this front office has shown um, – a willingness to milk every asset down to its last drop for whatever they can get. So it'd be hard for me to believe that they don't, they don't move Jing for anything. They just buy him out. Like two deals that come to mind for me. The one is the one I tweeted last night. Um, if the Raptors are very serious about Norm Powell being on the market, I think a trade where the Grizzlies send out Gorgie Jang and two second round picks for Norm Powell and Aaron Baines makes sense for both sides. Um, the Raptors would be saving $17 million in cap space going into this offseason, and the Grizzlies get what would probably be their starting shooting guard for the next couple of years. Two problems with that. One problem, which is not really a problem, but it's a thing that would have to be dealt with, is just the overload on depth. Somebody would have to go. There would probably have to be another alternate trade where the Grizzlies trade Grayson Allen or somebody to clear up um, some space in the backcourt. Um, but you do, you're do you more than willing to do that for a player of Norm Powell's caliber. He would immediately be the team's starting shooting guard. Um, the other issue is what Norm Powell would command on the open market. Yep. Um, you're the one who told me, and like I've heard these same whispers as well, that he could command $20 billion a year. I also told you this, I'm not very up for overpaying for guys who had a career year that was very much not in line with their career averages. Norm Powell's averaging just under 20 points a game and shooting 40 plus percent from three. The, pes the pessimist in me doesn't think he would do that in Grizzlies uniforms. That makes me a little bit iffy on paying the big bucks to keep him in Memphis, but you do what you have to do to retain talent. You got to pay talent at one point, at some point or another. So that's one potential deal. Another one, um, maybe Gorgie Jang and a second round pick for Kevin Knox in New York. The Knicks need a center. Although I think Mitchell Robinson is not far from coming back at this point, but they could use some more front court depth. Um, Jang is a very switchable big who could fill in a nice role for them. And Kevin Knox, they haven't exactly given up on him, but I, I think it's pretty clear he's never going to be anything in New York. I also don't think he would really be an active member of the Grizzlies rotation, but it's always good to take a low-risk, high-reward flyer on a young guy who hasn't exactly panned out his first few years in the league. So those are two deals that come to me off the top of my head. What do you think is going to happen? So Joe is actually trusting me with the trade primer for tomorrow on GBB. So. And I wrote about Jang today on the blog as well. I'm more in line thinking that I don't know if a straight-up deal is going to happen. I think if there's a straight-up deal, it's something like you said with Knox or they attach Grayson Allen and the Utah pick that's looking more and more like a depreciating asset, similar to like the Grizzlies pick to Boston and the Sacramento pick to Boston the past two seasons. And they try to go get like a Harrison Barnes or a Buddy Heald, who I think both are commanding first-round picks. 
but I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a three-team trade. Just from what I'm seeing with Orlando in particular, with them dealing Aaron Gordon and dealing Evan Fournier, just the return that they would get, I think it fits Memphis more than it does Orlando. So I think that could help facilitate a three-team trade. Who that would bring back, I don't know. I saw Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated said that if that deal with Marcus Smart for Evan Fournier and Aaron Gordon were to happen, that they could use Marcus Smart to reroute to a third team. That would be a dream. I know I know uh, people kind of like, oh, well, he's basically Dylan Brooks, but also like Marcus Smart is just an elite defender, an all-defensive team player. He can create his own shot. And if you were to make a move for Tyus Jones – for all 48 minutes on the floor, you can either have John Moran or Marcus Smart on the floor. So that's enticing. I wouldn't also rule out Gary Harris. I know people are like, oh, the years, but I, I'm pretty sure he expires after next season. And if that's the case, then the Grizzlies would have almost $7 million or $70 million in expiring contracts that can be used at next in the next offseason, next year's deadline, or just cast face opening up because of. I know this is going to be a conversation for another podcast, but if Jaron Jackson Jr. gets a max and you have that much expiring contracts, that's space to have one more max slot. So Jaron Jackson is, I cannot see Jaron Jackson Jr. getting a max at this point. I'm having my own doubts about whether he'll even be back this year at this point. I have no desire to discuss that at this point, but it's all good. Yeah, yeah. The Grizzlies could find themselves in a Steph Curry situation going forward where Jaron Jackson does eventually pan out and become the player that most of us think he can be. And if they have him on a smaller contract than what his talent should probably bring him, let's say um, four years, 80 million, just off the top of my head that will give the Grizzlies more cap room to be able to add a third star or to add another star on a max contract, which will only benefit them in the long run. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Interesting to note that 2022 free agent Zach Levine has a dog named Grizzly via the Chicago Bulls Twitter account. So that's something to keep in mind. But obviously, conversation for another night. Let's close the show with this. Nate, give a prediction for tonight's game against OKC. The Grizzlies will win. They can't lose that OKC team twice. Um, Al Horford is supposed to be back tonight. So uh, the Thunder have a better roster to play than they did in their last game, which means the Grizzlies. Shay Georges Alexander is out for tonight's game with plantar fasciitis. I take it back. They may lose. (laughs) Uh, That was. It's been a while since I've seen a guard just cleanly carve up the Grizzlies defense the way that SGA did in that game. It didn't matter what they threw at him. Dylan Brooks couldn't slow him down. Um, Poor John Morant got cooked to bits in the last few minutes of that fourth quarter. Yeah, he was – he's a special player. He showed it very much so in that game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he's unbelievable. Like, he is such an unbelievable player, and his leap as a shot creator – been on display this season and he's really thriving and you and you know what um the clippers made a mistake giving up all they did to get Paul george they did Whoa. that's not is that even a hot take at this point would you rather have no. No. next to sga and the other um complimentary pieces they had back then as compared yeah, they, to they gave up gallinari too it yeah. was 
Gilgis Alexander and Gallinari for five and five picks for Paul George. Yeah. So they made a mistake there. Um, that is what it is. I'm not saying the Clippers are not title content. Well, they're not winning the title. Who am I kidding? Okay. But um, they made a mistake. They did. It is what it is. And, and you know what? Kawhi probably doesn't come if you don't get Paul George. So that is what it is. Hindsight's 2020, revisionist history. But um, they would have a better team now if they just gotten Kawhi and kept what they had for sure. Yeah, I, w- I want to give uh, two quick takes, one on each side. I think you're going to see one of the – I think we'll, tonight we'll see one of the shooting guards have an explosive night between uh, Desmond Bain, D'Anthony Melton, and Grayson Allen. I think one of those three players will have a big night for the Grizzlies to lead them to victory. And my other take is that I think Poku is going to shine again. I'm not on the train. I will never, ever, ever before Poku becoming a star. But I just love the narrative on him on NBA draft Twitter. I, I really appreciate and see like seeing like, you know, they're sticking with Poku. I mean, he seems like a pretty fun player, but I'd, I just don't want to bite on a, on a guy's potential who is built like the uh, cinnamon stick in the Apple Jacks commercials. <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. Brandon Abraham will like this. I would buy Memphis Hustle season tickets if Poku came to South Haven. I absolutely would. It's, I don't really know just – I don't really know what makes people gravitate toward him because he's an objectively terrible basketball player at the moment. Well, not um, against the Grizzlies last time. Not against the – then again, he was getting warm-up jumpers the entire game. Uh, there are a lot of players who could have had a good game of what the Grizzlies were doing in that one, but – um, I will tell you right now, there is absolutely no way that Poku has another good game <laughs> against Memphis tonight. If you want a specific prediction from me, that's the one you're going to get. And if you're talking about one of the shooting guards having a big night, I assume you mean Grayson Allen because only one of those three guys are playing 30-plus minutes a night, and it is for whatever reason, Grayson Allen. I don't know what blackmail he has on Taylor Jenkins, but, um, you know, that's just, <laughs> that's just the scenario at the moment. It's March, baby. You got to recapture that magic from the 2015 Duke Championship run. But uh, Nate, someone ought to tell Justice Winslow at his 18% from three shooting percentage at the moment. Well, on that note, that's about all the time we have. Nate, plug in your stuff. You could find me on Twitter at NathanChester24. You could find all of my negative reactionary. And you can also find me, all my Grizzlies-related content on grizzlybearblues.com. For sure, yeah. Make sure you're following him. Uh, if, if he gets too negative, don't be afraid to just dunk on him. I mean, I do it. The rest of the GBB staff does it. Just It's fair game. Just treat him like Aaron Baines if he gets too negative. And you can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Make sure you're reading the blog at grizzlybearblues.com. Follow it on Twitter at Grizzlies. Make sure you're listening to every episode on the GBB Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megafin, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the podcast on Twitter at the Core 4 Podcast, the number four, not the word four. Nate, I'll let you have the honors. That's all, folks. <laughs>